and welcome to Let's Talk SciComm, a podcast by the University of Melbourne Science Communication Teaching Team. I'm Associate Professor Jen Martin and my wonderful co-host is Dr Michael Wheeler and we believe that science isn't finished until it's communicated. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk SciComm. As always, I have my trusty sidekick and colleague and friend with me, Michael. Hello, Michael. Hey, Jen. I'm super excited for today's episode. Have you been described as a sidekick before? I know I come out with all the sorts of interesting (laughs) descriptions for you, and sometimes they're not things that you're used to. How about sidekick? I know. I'm just waiting every episode, Jen, to what I'm going to be described as next. I think I was a partner in crime before, and now I'm a sidekick. I'm hoping that I'm always respectful. Please tell me if you ever feel, you know, disrespected. No, always respectful, always respectful, yeah. Well, I'm very excited to respectfully introduce you and our listeners to today's guests because Professor Natalie Hannon would have to be one of the most passionate dedicated, kind, and also accomplished scientists that I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And Michael, you are just going to love chatting with her. So Natalie's work focuses on basically understanding some of the complications that happen during human pregnancy, but she's been awarded millions of dollars in funding. She leads the Therapeutics Discovery and Vascular Function Group, which is part of a broader group called the Translational Obstetrics Group at the Mercy Hospital for Women. She's an ARC Future Fellow at the University of Melbourne. She's also Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion in the Faculty of Dentist, sorry, the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Science at the University of Melbourne. So she's a really vocal and active advocate for gender equality in STEM. If that wasn't enough, she's also the president of the Australian and New Zealand Placental Research Association. She's a Vesky Inspiring Women Fellow. She's received a crazy number of awards for her work, both internationally and nationally. Most recently, I saw on Twitter just the other day, the Dame Kate Campbell Fellowship. Nat, I have no idea how you've managed to fit us into your day, but gosh, we're grateful that you have. So welcome to Let's Talk SciComm. Oh, that is the best introduction I think I've ever had, Jen. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, Very, very kind. And yeah, this was my pleasure. And uh, I'm thrilled to be able to join you today to chat all things science and communication. So Michael, I have to start by telling you how I know Nat, because we do actually go back quite a long way. So this is going to this is going to give away how old we are, Nat. But (laughs) back in 2006, We met because we both applied and were accepted into Australia's National Fresh Science competition. And Fresh Science is still going. It's a little bit different to what it was when we did it. But anyone listening who's interested in learning to be a better communicator, I think Nat and I would both recommend it as a great program. So essentially it's a a boot camp to train early career researchers how to not sound like scientists. So, you know, we went to schools, we had to do press conferences, we um, had to talk in pubs, we did all this stuff. And I don't know about you, Nat, but, you know, I was pretty fresh-faced back then. I didn't even really know what science communication was. But ever since then, you and I have sort of stayed in touch. We're both busy, but we've sort of cheered each other on from the sidelines. And the fact that not only are you a hugely accomplished and brilliant scientist, but you're also such an active science communicator, it just, it makes my heart swell with pride. 
Oh, I know. It's I have fond memories. And yeah, I was definitely fresh. <laughs> Those times were amazing. And I think we had such a great time in that program. And yeah, now we've become lifelong friends and been able to watch each other's careers flourish. And yeah, I, I also am so proud of you when I see wonderful things. So <laughs> I think it's absolutely amazing that we were able to meet and connect all those years ago. I mean, that competition, you know, so I just finished my PhD when Mm. I did that. I was my first year out of my PhD. But it completely changed the trajectory of my whole career because Fresh Science firstly showed me how much I loved being a jack of all trades rather than a specialist and made me realise that I loved hearing about all sorts of different areas of science. But probably more importantly, it showed me that you could take a group of people who are highly trained as formal kind of scientists who wrote it, you know, in this formal academic style and, and weren't necessarily very good at engaging the public. And in the space of a week, we received really good training and lots of feedback and opportunities for practice. And we all became better communicators. So I sort of went back to my job and thought, well, hang on, why aren't we training all scientists in this? Why do you have to wait until you can take part, a small number of people take part in a competition like this? Why aren't we training all scientists to do this? And, you know, that's that's what I've turned my career into. That's, you know, that's where the story begins of me moving into science communication. So it was truly life-changing for me learning yeah. what science communication was. Yeah, and I watched, I think about the pivot, even for myself, even just having senior science academics allowing the space for that and actually encouraging their you know their students their early career researchers actually think this is just as important it's not just Mm -hmm. a side thing nice to have it actually should be in every single person's wheelhouse and Mm -hmm. not it doesn't come naturally to all so I think we really should be encouraging and supporting our early career researchers to be able to explore how they actually communicate their work and in Mm -hmm. some ways it's it's a role that we actually have. We should be playing. It's a responsibility that we have to the community, particularly when we're funded by government grants and things. If we can't tell the story, then, you know, science isn't finished till it's communicated. So it, it's a really important thing that we all advocate and support for that next generation coming through mm. to do as well. Yeah, it sounds like such a pivotal moment in both of your careers feel like I've missed out. I wish I was there. <laughs> uh, it was fun as well, Michael. There was um, lots of other forms of communication. I think I had to sing a song to the, yeah, yeah. the backing of the YNCA about the uterus. So it was oh. important. Are there any recordings of uh, any of your communication work? Thankfully, this was, as Jen says, 2006. So prior <laughs> to Facebook and camera phone videos, other things. So I think thank we were, goodness. thank goodness we were safe (laughs) i'll just have to imagine it we had to write limericks and all sorts of things yeah Yeah. it was it was really fun Mm. but now i do want to go back a bit obviously Mm. we've just touched on some really fundamental things about science communication and why the three of us are all so passionate about it and obviously we'll come back to that but i'd love to hear a bit more about you and how you got into science you know what what were you interested in as a kid and do Mm. you have a memory of when you decided that science was going to be your thing yeah, I, I, it's actually really interesting. I have a vivid moment where I was in my 
year 10 science class and one of the teachers actually were talking about jobs and careers and so I should also mention I come I came from a very lower socioeconomic area going off to university to become a scientist was uh, not the career conversations we were having so you know I didn't even know what a scientist did we touched on like forensic science and at the time I can't remember what tv show it was but it was you know we could see the forensic scientists going into labs and studying the DNA and the fingerprints and I just remember thinking how exciting this was because how could you go to work every day and you don't know what the answer or the thing that you'll (laughs) discover I was thinking about becoming a science teacher and I'd even enrolled to do a dip ed so that I could use my bachelor of science and become a teacher and I stumbled upon by accident because my friend dragged me along who was I was carpooling and she took me (laughs) to an open day and I heard this most incredible story about how some women are infertile and they can't have children. It really dawned on me this this bizarre balance that you know we needed to do more research into. And so I did an honours research year and that was it. I knew there was nothing else for me but to follow this, I guess, discovery on how I could help meet some of these unmet gaps in, in the field of reproduction. Mm, that's yeah that's great it's um yeah as you say there's so many different paths for scientists and so many different areas it can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes and great that you immediately clicked with this area I'd love you to um, maybe just elaborate a little bit more on that so you said you did your honors year in this area and that was it what was it about that that really kind of lit a fire underneath you and that's kind of that you've kept that theme going throughout your career Yeah, it's a good question. And the thing I loved about research was I wanted to ask the question that I thought we needed to answer based on what I'd known from other people's work. So it's this continuum of seeing what someone else has done. Then you ask a question and then you answer the next part. It's like pieces of a puzzle. Mm. And I felt that in order for me to do that, I had to do a PhD because I wanted to drive the research. So I think of all of us as scientists, and, and it doesn't matter what field you're in and what area, I think we're all pieces in a puzzle. And, you know, it's that discovery. It's really exciting. And look at what you've accomplished. I mean, you said that it wasn't even on your radar to be a university student when you were in high school. And look at you now, a full professor, what, late 30s, early 40s? I yeah, mean, early 40s. That's, that's extraordinary, Nat. I, I really, you know give you full kudos I know you've worked incredibly hard to get there and Mm. I just hope you're really proud of what you've achieved oh yeah as I say so proud but also so grateful to the unsung heroes that you know walk with me and and have helped me get here as well yeah, it's definitely a team endeavour, isn't it? Science? For sure, for sure. <laughs> but hey, I do just want to jump back to 2006 again for a second because it occurs to me I've never asked you this before, but there you were, a PhD student, convinced that you you know, you had identified an area of study that you're really passionate about. But what actually led you to apply to be a fresh scientist? Because I'd never heard of science communication in 2006. I didn't even know what it was. It just sounded kind of cool and fun to me. But was that something that was already on your radar, sharing science with non-scientists? Or like, why did you apply? I, I saw the advertisement for this program and I just thought, I love to talk 
I love, <laughs> as you can tell. That's why we get along so well, Michael, because we just like <laughs> to talk so much. Exactly. And so I also love to talk to different people. And I thought, what a barrier it is if I can only talk to like-minded individuals. You know, the skills to collaborate with people in, for example, a faculty of engineering, but we're looking at developing biotherapies, bioengineered therapies for pregnancy complications. But if I can't communicate my science to them, then that's going to be another barrier. And at that time, I don't think I even entered into my realm of thinking that science communication would be also important for grant success but you know you know just conveying my message out and at Prince Henry's where I did my PhD it's now the Hudson but at Prince Henry's Institute our director at the time and and the director after had a big emphasis on philanthropic donations and support so I also wanted to be able to talk to community while I was doing my PhD in this space which is like really intricate and detailed there was several people really close to me at the time who were actually going through IVF and infertility. You know, this can be a very complex and, and painful time and there was a lot of misinformation. We need to make sure that with that scientific misinformation that we as scientists come out with easily accessible information for those people because if the people who are misinforming those individuals they're the only people they can understand, then the scientists can't correct that misinformation. Mm. So it was really important for me to actually talk to my friends and say, you don't want that blood test because that's actually not true. The blood test is not testing things that are local and in that space and it's just costing you money. And it's and part of the other issue is IVF and assisted reproduction has really it's really kind of gone from a science, a fundamental science, into a clinic very fast without mm. very good rigorous scrutiny. And so I think the other part of it is trying to explain the scientific hypothesis behind why we would do certain things in a reproductive lab experiment to its, you know, trying to help the endocrinologists or the, the reproductive medicine specialists, the doctors actually doing what they're doing to patients and and. Things. So I would go to conferences of clinicians and talk about the science and why what they were doing was a, potentially even a, a little detrimental and, and could be actually reducing the success of what they were doing because of the way they were doing it. And if that's changing practice for a clinician, that's one thing. If it's helping a, a friend or a, you know, a family member navigate through IVF or assistive reproduction technologies to have their own treatment for them, their own cells, they need to understand enough of that reproductive biology mm. to actually feel, you know, this is the right course for me or I feel safe in this space. Yeah. Mm. And, and I can imagine some of that communication is really hard as well. You know, you, maybe you're telling people things they don't want to hear. You mentioned communicating to scientists saying, well, maybe this isn't the optimal type of therapy. And maybe it's the same for communicating with friends. How did you deal with that if you're maybe, mm. yeah, communicating about things that people might be a little bit sensitive to? Yeah, particularly, I mean, the, it's a very sensitive issue for people to talk about pregnancy loss, to talk about infertility, you know, whether it's a male side of thing that the, there's a problem, whether it's the female side of the reproduction that's the issue, and it can be really confronting. And again, it's why I would try and use fact and not emotion. So it's actually thinking back to the real fundamentals of what we're talking about and using that fact to help them. 
but you're right it's a very sensitive area and particularly you know now I work more towards actual pregnancy complications so you've got these major complications of pregnancy that can be really traumatic for women they often can lose the baby themselves or um, with preeclampsia there's a high risk of maternal death so Mm. you know there's even that's an issue and now what we've discovered and and it's you know not just myself but there's many great scientists working in this space there's now once you've had preeclampsia you've got increased risk of cardiovascular disease and to try and talk that through with a a mother or a, a a pregnant person who has had a child and that pregnancy was complicated by these complications such as preeclampsia or hypertension in pregnancy you have to be very careful how you communicate that they need to advocate for themselves to go to the GP to have checkups because even the GPs don't necessarily understand this space yet Mm. this is very new so yeah it's a fine line of sensitivities and and being really cautious But I think it's also helped me then in my diversity and inclusion role because there's a lot of sensitivities there. And so Mm. I think one of my tips is to really listen, listen to the person and what what information they're sharing with you, but like actively listen to what the information is and how you respond. Think how that response or that communication, whatever you're about to tell them, is that helpful? And if it's not, you maybe hold that back. And is there a way to deliver that in in a in a way, so whether you're talking to a pregnant patient or a pregnant, you know, after the pregnancy is over, what their health risks are now, there's a way you can communicate that without being alarmist or scary. Mm. And same in in the area of diversity and inclusion. If someone's sharing with you something very profound, they may have experienced racism or sexual misconduct, you, you need to be able to listen and find out what they need from that conversation, that communication and then when you communicate back, you know, really trying to deliver that in a in a a way that's going to help them, but but also in a sensitive way that's not not going to harm them either. Just listening to you, Nat, I just think, wow, you've really thought a lot about what good communication is. You know, you've been talking about a lot of the things that Michael and I teach mm. to be clear on your purpose, to have a clear understanding of your audience, to think about the message that's going to resonate, to listen actively, to think about the audience and how you can help them. I mean, this is all absolutely gold standard communication. I'm wondering if there's other things that you would identify that you've learned along the way about how to communicate science well. Yeah, I guess the other part for me is when you you talk to someone and you explain something to them or you communicate something, their excitement or their engagement with that information can often be really inspiring. So, you know, if I, you know, I can think about an honours student that I was talking through how the placenta develops and and how it you know it invades and burrows and it has to anchor in and it has to really set its own blood supply up so it's it's really intricate but it's very controlled because you can imagine if it goes too far you can have real high risk of bleeding bleed risks but if it doesn't go far enough then the fetus the baby that's growing doesn't receive enough nutrients or oxygen and and that's why pregnancy complications arise so I think the exciting thing for me or the thing I've learned is you can see often if you're really looking actively, you know, listening and looking at that person when they get it and that light bulb moment. And I think then without that conversation or that communication interaction, they would never have taken away that piece of information. 
And then I think what they might go on to do after. For me, I think that's like a legacy piece. Yeah. I don't take credit for what they'll do with that next, but I think that interaction, that, that important communication that went on was maybe pivotal to their moment where they turned in and went towards a different direction. Yeah. yeah. I've only really begun supervising students, but I can only imagine what it's like, you know, being more experienced in that area and seeing your students go on and, and kick goals. And, and I'm just curious about that. You know, what do you advise your students in terms of getting them set up for a fulfilling career in science, you know, considering all of the the challenges associated with a fulfilling career, mm. you, you mentioned, you know, equity issues and just there's demands on time and everything. Yeah. What is, what is your advice to your students? Yeah, I think all my students and early career researchers would tell you that I'm someone who says passion has to be the very, you know, the very forefront of why you're doing what you're doing. So passion and purpose. And there's going to be days where they feel like they've gotten out of bed and they've done nothing because an experiment didn't work or something, their hypothesis was disproven. You have to have that culture that it's okay to fail because that's innovation, that's curiosity. And that's the only thing that's going to get us that one step closer to to finding the the reason. And I think the other part of it, you know, we've got to have fun as well. And so there will be days where it's really hard. There's a, you know, there's either a deadline on a grant or a paper, or we've got a lot on, on the plate, but you've got to have that fun as well. So you've got to have time to rest and recover. It's vital to the survival Mm. of scientists, I think, and normalizing that. I think it's really important. So we, we talk often about this. I think it's only a failure if you don't try and if you're afraid to try because you're afraid to fail. Mm. I think my advice yeah. is be brave and, <laughs> and be bold and have fun with it. And, and embrace failure. That's, mm. I think, an important message for everyone. But, Nat, I just want to briefly ask you, you've just talked a little bit about lab culture and I'd love just to hear your thoughts on finding time for communication because, you know, we all know how busy everybody is. Mm. I don't have time to talk to the media or go on a podcast or whatever it is. What sort of culture is there in your lab? I mean, obviously all the people around you see you making time for Mm. this stuff. Do you talk about that openly as being a responsibility or are you modelling what you think is good behaviour? Or, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I would say both. I, I think I try and model it, but also we definitely talk about it. And when I... When I talk to my team, I actually try to explain to them they're communicating science every day, even if they don't see mm. it. So when they're submitting an ethics application, they're communicating their science and to that audience. This might be to an ethics committee. When they write a paper, they're communicating to their scientific peers. When they, you know, they might be submitting an abstract to a conference or a grant, they're communicating to a panel of peer reviewers. And when they might be speaking to the midwives that collect our samples to so that they can communicate to a patient to help them feel comfortable about donating their samples to us. So there's communication in everything and I think normalising how important that is and actually it's your role to communicate what you need from that other person or what you need from that committee or that panel. But also if any of my team have a talk, even if it's a department seminar or it's a big plenary at an international conference we always calendar put in the calendar diarize a practice and why that's important is if you don't make time for it as you say in your busy day 
you get you can get to the point where you just think I'll do it later I'll do it later and then you turn up to this moment where people are giving their time to come and listen to you as well and that's a privilege we need to make sure we're respectful to that privilege and those people that we give the best of ourselves. And so yeah. we also get each other. So all the peers, if, if my honours student or my PhD student's talking, the whole lab come and we yeah. all give constructive feedback, actionable constructive feedback to that person. And as you know, I've got some PhD and honours and, and so forth that they, they go on to win big prizes for their communication yeah. of their work and it's because we value it so highly, I think. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And and having a culture, as you say, where you also identify fun as being important. I really resonate with that. Fun is one of my core values. So, you know, I really, really appreciate that. And the time has come for us to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> In the spirit of fun, here's one we prepared earlier. Perfect. Love so it. So I'm glad you're all for the fun. Because I love we got fun. Some fun questions now. <laughs> Rapid fire questions. Don't think about it too much and just lighthearted. So um, first question, Nat, if you had to pick an alternative career to what you're doing now, what would it be? Oh, it would be absolutely having my own cake shop. So one of my other huge passions is cakes and baking and creating you know so I love cakes and love eating them but I also love making them for others mm. I'm gonna let you know when my birthday is Nat. perfect Don't mind me. <laughs> perfect <laughs> okay next question please tell us what is your proudest professional moment it may be a several moments but it's when the people that I lead you know, go on to do something great and I just look at them and I'm just I'm proud of what they have been able to do and become and I think at least it's partly to do with my leadership and my vision and support of them. So that has to be the truth. <laughs> it's when I see the others that are really important to me succeed. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really kind of tangible way of seeing the impact of, of what you've done. So that's fantastic. Alrighty, Twitter or Instagram and why? Twitter, because I feel like I'm a bit better with my words than I am with my photos. <laughs> and also I this is a real practical thing. I my phone was too full of apps, so I had to get rid of Insta. So I'm I'm Twitter all the way now. That's the best reason ever for getting off a social media <laughs> platform. I didn't have room on my phone. <laughs> It's ridiculous, but true. <laughs> okay, Nat, what is your favourite science-related movie or book or joke? Oh, I do love Gattaca. I don't know if you've seen <sighs> yeah, yeah. Gattaca. Yeah, so good. I'm wondering if the young listeners would have ever seen it, and if not, I highly recommend to go and finding it, um, whether it's <laughs> on VHS or DVD. But I'm no, sure... you can get it. You can get it because my son, my 14 year old, was recommended to watch it as part of a unit at school on kind of dystopian futures, and so mm. we definitely found it online. It's yeah, everyone should watch it. It's pretty full on, but yeah, great. yeah. And the other one, I guess, would be it's not really science but I do love back to the future yes, yes. with Doc Emmett Brown he is amazing in that movie and you know just the the cool science about thinking about time travel so and the music mm. the, the music yeah. definitely <laughs> yep 
<laughs> it's, it's, you said it's not really science, but maybe it's not really science yet, because I think a lot of science fiction sometimes does turn into science fact. So Absolutely. fingers crossed for time travel. I don't know. Or maybe we shouldn't cross our fingers for time travel. <laughs> It'd be very complicated. <laughs> yeah. Not sure what we want, actually. <laughs> Alrighty, Nat, last question. You've given us some great advice on communication so far, but I'd love to know what your top tip for effective communication is. Mm. Keep it simple and remember the purpose. What do you want out of that communication? And you don't have to sound fancy or have big (laughs) words to be important or have important work. Here, here. I couldn't put it better myself thinking about the kind of whole elitism that comes up sometimes in the way scientists communicate, keeping it simple and not using fancy words. Mm. I love it, Nat. It's much more accessible for more people as well. So if you want more people to benefit from that piece that you're going to share, then keep it simple. Yep, 100%. Well, Nat, we have been so, so thrilled to speak with you today. Thank you again very much for making time for us. Congratulations on all of the work that you and your team do. And I'm just thrilled to be able to follow on. So obviously we will share all of the links to all of the great places that you are online and the things that you do so everyone can follow up. But please just keep doing the amazing work you do and keep communicating about it. And thank you for your time. Oh, thank you both, Jen and Michael. This has been amazing. And thank you both for this fantastic podcast. I, I listened to it and my one of my PhD students, uh, we often talk about what was talked about on the podcast, That you know, the past one that dropped. So I just think you're doing an amazing thing, which is so helpful to so many that they might not have people in their worlds that can help them with this. So this mm-hmm. is a brilliant initiative. So, you know, congratulations to you. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Nat. Thanks for listening. And thanks also to our wonderful production team, Stephanie Wong and Stephen Tang for making these episodes happen behind the scenes. And thanks also to you, our listeners, for your support. If you are enjoying these episodes, you can help spread the word by telling a friend about Let's Talk SciComm or even sharing one of our episodes. But that's all for this week. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. See you then.